Welcome to the Liberty Block, where accountability, freedom, and logic are paramount. Good evening, and welcome to the Liberty Block on 1490 WGCH. I will be filling in this evening for your regular host, Elliot Axelman, as he is attending a medical conference in Wyoming with his brother and co-host, Laser. In line with the subject we spoke about last week, Laser has left New York for good, no longer subject to its high taxes, overbearing laws and regulations. Our phone number, if you would like to be on the program, is 203-661-5051. Last week, we spent a lot of time explaining why we believe America as a country is no longer fixable and what we can do going forward. We also mentioned that even stalwart anti-third-party conservatives and commentators like Mark Levin, Rush, and Dan Bongino have started to think otherwise. So tonight we welcome another third-party candidate for governor of a neighboring state. Joining us now is Mr. Peter Rohrman, who is running for governor of New Jersey as a libertarian. Welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you, Stephen. Hey, that was a great lead-in, the, 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 uh, the one that came in right before you come, uh, came on the air. It was, was pretty good. I like that. Um, talking about what you were saying before, you, you just made a comment about how you think America is unfixable. Maybe which is what, exactly what you said, but that just stood out to me. Now, the system that we have so far in America, we have uh, most states have uh, the same thing across the board. We have an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch, and that's it. That's supposed to be our checks and balances right there. I've implementing where my tax plan. It's more than a tax plan. It's uh, it's more of an economic plan. It's 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 sort of like a introducing a fourth branch of government. Under our current republic, where it's exercised as a um, representative democracy, I'm implementing a plan called fiscal democracy, whereas we move appropriations to the individual. Now, we see the past 150 years or so, we've given, we've abdicated our appropriations to our elected legislators, and they've done nothing but drop the ball, increase our taxes, increase our tyranny. So I'm going to introduce what I call fiscal democracy that is going to put a new check into the balance of political power, whereas under my tax plan, Everyone will be a a flat tax rate, but under my plan, everyone will be able to have the ability to have the save where their tax dollars are spent. If you like, like for example, I'll go into like how how it works. Uh, We're going to be introducing a a new flat tax. Now, let's not call it a new tax; it can be a replacement. Well, before I leave that, let's talk about taxes in New Jersey. In New Jersey, from the state, the county, and municipal government, your average person is spending approximately 30% of their income to the state, the county, and municipal government. And what they get for that isn't much. Um, we, we, the reason why the tax is so high in New Jersey isn't because we have better services than anybody else. isn't because we, um, we, uh, we do away with corruption. We have plenty of corruption here. So people in New Jersey, they're spending about 30% of their income in taxes for the state, the county, and municipal governments. My tax plan, when I implement it, it's going to be a single tax. We're going to eliminate everything, eliminate the gas tax, eliminate property tax, eliminate sales tax, 
even vehicle registration fees, all that stuff is going to be going out the window and replaced with what I call fiscal democracy. It'll be a 10% flat tax placed on everyone. And the way this works, too, is that uh, under, like, the fiscal democracy part of it is that you will be allowed to appropriate funds where you see fit. If you find value in your school district, you can put as much of your contributions into there as possible. For like academic purposes, we could say, imagine if uh, your average person or a person is making $100,000 a year, simple math, 10, 10% is $10,000. And you can take all $10,000 and you can put it into your local school district, or you can break it up and put it out all over the place. Now, this does a lot of great things. First of all, it gives people the ability to feel better about where their tax dollars go. Now, it'll take away complaints about people funding things that they don't want to fund. Uh, imagine that there's plenty of Christians out there who are against Planned Parenthood, don't like their money being taken from them by force and put into Planned Parenthood. This removes that. Now, once people appropriate their money and put into a specific program, it can't be deallocated by legislators. Now, this will have to be done through constitutional amendments to make sure that they don't get funny with the way funding goes. But there are, and there are other aspects of it, too, like, uh, for instance, competition. We see how, how competition has strengthens uh, athletes, it strengthens the business world, but where, we have, where we're missing competition and we need it the most is in our government. If we institute this plan, now local governments and the state government and the county governments will all be in competition for your tax dollars. Every service that they provide, they're going to be doing the best job possible because if they don't do a good job or if they're providing a service that is unnecessary, people can defund it. Now, getting back to what you were talking about before about America needing uh, was being unfixable, I think it is fixable. If you implement a new plan like this, where you implement a way where the people actually have a say. Now, people used to have a say with their vote, but like this gives people the ability to vote with their dollars and to say, "Hey, this program is good, or this program is worthless, and I'm going to defund it." It'll change everything. It takes appropriations away from irresponsible legislators and puts it into the hands of the people where it belongs. Well, I don't think America is not fixable because there aren't a lot of great ideas. So if you want to go into a whole long speech about why I think it's unfixable, that's because none of these ideas will ever get passed because the parties won't let them get passed because the people are just not educated enough to care because too many non-taxpayers are voting to take our dollars away from us, et cetera. Um, I wanted to ask you, first of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in running for governor. About myself a little bit, I'm single dad, 47 years old, I'm a network engineer by trade, and uh, let's see, what else about me? Uh, went to Rutgers University, majored in computer science, I, was a, I spent eight years in the Marine Corps as a rifleman, and I've always been interested in government. And about three years ago, I had decided that I had enough of what was going on in this government, and decided that I needed to start getting involved in what's going on. So about three years ago, I started running for what's called county freeholder. Um, in New Jersey, we, each county has a set of like a small board of legislators. They call them freeholders. Uh, other states, I don't know what they call them, maybe councilmen or something like that. But I ran for county freeholder twice. And 2015, I did okay. I think I did about 8% uh, of the vote. And then I doubled my vote count in 2016. And then this year, uh, I really was, I was considering taking the year off because I was pretty tired from running two years in a row. But we were working on coming in, we're working on bringing in some big-name candidates to represent the Libertarian Party in New Jersey, and both of them had dropped out last minute. So we were looking around for a candidate to run, and most people had asked me, the party members had asked me, Pete, please run, you ran two good campaigns, and 
how could I say no? They, people needed me to run, so here I am. I'm putting myself out there for the party and for the people. Yeah, which takes an amazing amount of energy besides all the other stuff. If you oh don't mind goodness. talking about a topic that's slightly off topic for someone who wants to be a governor, but a very hot topic in the libertarian world is you, like Larry Sharp, have a military background. And military and libertarian are two words that don't mix well quite often. I know that I have a relative who just finished basic training, and he said the word libertarian is on a good day worth something in a latrine. So could you speak a little bit about, A, why they may have that reputation, why you may or may not be different, why they shouldn't have that reputation, why the military should realize that libertarians may be their best friends? Well, first and foremost, I'm proud of my service. Well, you should be, by the way. Yeah, I, I'm proud of my service. I learned so much about myself in the Marine Corps. Is probably it was the best education I ever received was from the Marine Corps. No, it was it's blue college away. You learned uh, you learned um, initiative. You learned how to take charge. You learned leadership. You learned responsibility. All, all the stuff you can learn in the Marine Corps, and, and that's where I learned all those traits from. But um, I also learned too that that's where I started taking my first steps towards libertarianism. When I was enlisted, this was back during Desert Storm, uh, about 1990-91 or so, and I was actually I was studying to become an officer in the Marine Corps. I was looking for to become a professional officer as a, as a uh, career man, and um, was going to college, enlisted in the reserves, simultaneously doing both, and also going to officer candidate school, pursuing that. And then Desert, Desert Storm came up and interrupted everybody's lives. I was placed on active duty, and during active duty, there was like a little bit of downtime here or there or whatever. And um, during that time, we had a, a general of the Marine Corps. Is um, we're coming to the Marine Corps. His name was General Al Gray, another guy from New Jersey. He had instituted. He was big on reading. He was a bachelor. He was big on reading. He had instituted a not a mandatory but a suggested reading list for every single Marine, uh, or at each rank. So this way, you could better prepare you for the next rank. I thought it was a good idea. And I noticed. I went through this whole list of books. There's probably about 400 books on this list. And there was not a single book written by General Smedley Butler. General Smedley Butler was the only Marine officer in the history of the Marine Corps to have ever won the Medal of Honor twice. And in boot camp, you're taught about him, you're schooled, like, you know, what he did and his exploits or whatnot. But he didn't know too much about his personal life. And it made me curious. I was thinking, like, why would the Marine Corps reading list not have any writings done by Smedley Butler? So that prompted me to go out and find some of his books. And I, the book that I found while I was in Desert Storm was called War is a Racket. And I don't know if you read it. But no, it's, I it's did a short not. Read. It's, it's a short read, and it really is impactful. Um, I think every mother in America who's considering sending their son into the military should read this book. Every father, too, by the way. This book was an anti-war book. And if you imagine, they, a general in the Marine Corps writes an anti-war book. And it went into explicit details about what it's about. And he even labeled himself. He said he, he, didn't, he never felt good about his, his time in the Marine Corps because uh, he looked at himself as a, I think his a quote was, he looked at himself as a high-class hitman for corporate America. And he was discussing how, like, during, like, the banana wars, all they were doing is, is going in and seizing banana fields for corporate interests. And during Desert Storm, like, there was a parallel right there. It was the same exact theme. It's just it was a different product. We're going after oil fields. Back 100 years ago, we were going after banana fields. And we're going out, invading foreign lands, taking their resources, 
killing people. This is the worst part of that, is you're killing people and making more enemies of the state. So that was my first introduction to libertarianism. And after reading that book, after Desert Storm happened, my mindset changed a lot about me pursuing a career as a professional Marine. And I started walking away from it. I turned down my commission. I finished my enlistment. I have an honorable discharge. And at that point in my life, I said I was never going to work for the government ever again. <laughs> because I just didn't, I, I felt I felt I fit in better into a private sector. And I just, I don't want to lose my soul as someone who is a professional killer. So I'm glad I made that decision early in life. And a lot of people come up to me afterwards, like my brother, Michael, he, um, he was always very gung-ho about me getting into the officer candidate program because when I was, when I was accepted to it, I, uh, I was accepted to like a coveted spot. It was a flight slot. There's only like two slots left in America at the time, and I had slid into one. And um, I was going to be a fighter pilot in the Marine Corps. And my brother kept saying, "Don't you ever feel bad that you ever turned it?" I'm like, "No, absolutely not. I kept my soul. I never had to kill anybody, and I'm happy with my life." So. That's where I was as a military person. But the, also, like, talk about, like, you're probably hinting towards, more towards the, the kind of argument that went on between, between Arvind Vora, the vice chair of the National Party, and uh, Larry Sharp. I know both of them were very vocal and really going at it when it came to their point on libertarianism and where the military should be. Now, I saw Arvind's comments, and I didn't take offense to it. I didn't, because I'm, I'm sort of in that mindset. But at the same time, too, I can see where Larry Sharp was coming from as well. Like, because here we have Larry and myself and everybody that joins the Marine Corps, the Army, the Navy, Air Force, you're joining as a young man or a young woman with the best of intentions. You really are. You, your intentions are to, to give your life for your country, for your family, if, you, if it's needed to be done. There's nothing more honorable than the giving your life for a friend or a stranger that you don't even know. But Many of these kids don't realize how, how perverted the whole system is. They, the military is used for a lot more than preserving your freedom. If, like, the, the last war, I don't want to call a war good, but the last time we were ever really involved in a war that was really, I think, we were justly getting pulled into it, was World War II. Every war after that has been nothing more than, I guess, uh, promoting American corporate interests around the world or promoting just just promoting war for itself, just to promote the military-industrial complex. Now, I believe, as a libertarian, I wouldn't call myself an anarchist. I'm more of like what's called like a minarchist. I believe in government. Now, I also believe that we need a Marine Corps, we need an Army, we need a Navy to protect our shores from invasion. Now, we can supplement that with like something, things like the Second Amendment, but you still need to have an Army and a Navy. The size of it is always up for debate, but we do need a military force. That's my standpoint. Okay. Peter, we're going to go to a quick break, and then we're going to get back. And if you don't mind, we got lots and lots of questions. Welcome back to the Liberty Block on 1490 WGCH. If you'd like to be on our show, please call 203 203- Six six one five zero five one. I also welcome back our esteemed guest, who is running for governor of New Jersey as the Libertarian candidate. I forgot to ask you the most important question: Do you f- prefer Pete or Peter? Either one. Okay. I, when I was a, when I was a kid, my my all my friends called me PJ, 
It went to Peter from my teachers, and Pete's fine, too. Whatever makes you more comfortable. All right, then I'm going to call you either one. Okay, okay, either one. I don't want to spend the whole show on the military, <laughs> but I'm curious what you would say about what's going on with, for instance, North Korea. If you were not governor, if you were Congress or something, what would be your opinion of what's going on and what America should or should not do? Well, it's scary <laughs> to have a man with nuclear weapons threatening us. The, the man is clearly insane. I, I don't know what he's doing over there. Um, not talking about Trump. I'm talking about Kim Jong-un. Um, <laughs> I wasn't going to ask you. Okay. But uh, making these threats that he's going to launch missiles at Hawaii or Alaska or something like that, I don't understand where he's going from. Where is all the animosity from? I don't know. Uh, is it just for him to be – I don't know. There could be things going on inside of his government where he has to look like a hardliner or else he could be subject to a coup d'etat. You never know. I, I don't, we, nobody knows what goes on over there. So that could be part of it where he's just trying to satisfy his underlings who are all hardliners to just take a tough stance. Now, we know there is no way he's launching nuclear missiles at us. There's no way that we could turn that whole country into a parking lot. And it, we have Trevor, uh, President Trump uh, at the helm right now, and I, I, I don't think he had any reservations of counter-striking if any kind of missiles headed our way. So um, I'm not worried about it. The whole idea with nuclear war... And why it doesn't happen is what's called nuclear deterrence, mutual annihilation. If, by chance, you use nuclear weapons, you're guaranteed your own destruction. That's what keeps nuclear war from going on. Now, I don't, I'm, I don't my personally, I really don't have any fears. It's a little scary thing that somebody is making threats of that magnitude towards the United States. But let's look at what it is. It's, it's really nothing to worry about. Okay. Let's segue just a little bit onto guns. Not only the whole Second Amendment issue, but I just caught another story today about people who fly or visit New York have licenses for guns. They call TSA. They ask what they should do. They follow TSA's direction, directions to the letter. When they're leaving New York, they again ask TSA. They do exactly what TSA wants. And then in the airport, TSA calls the cops. They get arrested, threatened with three years in jail, and then pay $10,000, $15,000 to get out of it. And part of that's an interstate reciprocity issue, obviously. But what is your stance on guns, and is it what you would call a mainstream libertarian stance on guns? I think I'm probably mainstream libertarian. In New Jersey, we have some of the most oppressive gun laws in the country. Talking about what you're just saying, be right there. There was a story in New Jersey a few years ago where a, a man was traveling through New Jersey. He had landed in Newark, and he was going, it was like a layover, and he was landing, going somewhere else. I remember this story. Yeah, that's why okay, this yeah. story tripped my memory, but tell the story anyway. Yeah, I, I wish I remember who the man was and what year it was. Was he military? Was, no, he was not military. He was, he was a civilian. Okay. He was, he was traveling through Newark on a, like a layover, and his plane, his, uh, sec, his second plane uh, uh, taking off never took off. It was, was canceled, so he had to wait till the next day. So, he took his weapon, because the, the, the airline didn't want to hold on to it, that he took his weapon, took it to a hotel room, and since he wasn't, a, um, he wasn't a citizen of New Jersey, he didn't have what was called a New Jersey firearms ID card. And now he's in violation of the law. That's like, a, like the five years in jail. That's a felony to have a, a weapon on your possession if you don't have one of those cards. And I can go into like, the whole details of like, what those cards do, but like, they purposely set him up. And... Like we talked about in New York, the same thing happens. They purposely set people up to sensationalize all these these gun issues. And, you know, maybe, maybe some of it is kind of like false flag stuff. I don't know. Maybe it could be. But 
this man was prosecuted to the fullest extent of the, war, uh, to the law, and he did nothing wrong. He was traveling with a firearm. I think he was going on vacation somewhere, and he had a layover, and his, his plane was canceled, so he took his weapon to his hotel room. He wasn't going out, like, knocking over the 7-Eleven. He had a case. He was going to the hotel. He was peacefully staying there, and then cops come, and they bust him for having a weapon on his person illegally. Now, in New Jersey, the gun laws are incredibly restrictive. It's probably the worst in the union. There's no concealed carry. Like, there's approximately, what, 30 states in the union that allow people to protect themselves and have a weapon on their person, but New Jersey is not one of them. And in New Jersey, we were talking about just before what was called the Farms ID card. It's a, the Farms ID card, card law started in the 1960s or so. For you to purchase a firearm legally in New Jersey, you have to get one of these cards. You, the way you get it is you apply at your local police chief, and the police chief has 30 days by state statute to return that investigation as positive or negative. But also in the state statute, there's absolutely no penalty for a police chief that does not return the investigation on time. So many of these police chiefs that are anti-Second Amendment, they will drag their feet forever. And this has caused huge problems in New Jersey. The most tragic story I can tell, talk about is the story of Carol Bone. Carol Bone was a woman, beautiful woman, lived in central New Jersey, I think it was Berlin, New Jersey. And she was subject to the abuse of a, um, a former lover. And... She did what every woman does. She goes out and gets a restraining order, but she realizes a restraining order is nothing more than a piece of paper, and the piece of paper protects no one but the judge's reputation. Mm -hmm. Because if a judge doesn't give it out, then what happens? Whatever, the judge puts his job in. Uh, so anyway, she gets this restraining order, and she knows. She's, I think she even said to her neighbors or her mother something like that, he, he's going to kill me. So what she did was she went out through lawful means, because she's a lawful person, and went to her police department and applied for a firearms ID card to purchase a pistol. Now, she was like by 30, she had 30. The, the police chief had 30 days to return the investigation to her and, and give her a card, but she was waiting twice the amount of time. She was at almost 60 days, and her estranged lover approaches her at her house in front of her driveway. I think her child was probably watching from the front door, and stabs her to death in her driveway. Now, these are laws that are getting in our way. Now. People, like, people in New Jersey are a little funny when it comes to firearms. They don't really understand that they're inanimate objects. They, they listen to the uh, everything. Wait a minute. Excuse me, excuse press. me, Pete. You mean they're yeah. not like SUVs that drive themselves into other cars? Right, right. Yeah, good. That's a good point. You know, more people are killed with vehicles every year in New Jersey than they are with firearms. Especially SUVs because they do it by themselves. You know, SUV kills a person. But, right. okay. Exactly. So um, it's tough here in New Jersey because most people, they, you know, it's, it's left-leaning in New Jersey and people are afraid of firearms. And people don't want people like myself or yourself to have a weapon on their person because it just freaks them out. Now, they don't really, like, they're, like, if you go to another state, if you go to Maine, you go to Florida, many people from New Jersey vacation in Florida. And that's a concealed carry state. People don't realize it. You're walking around, and there are people with guns under their coats, in their jeans. And I myself, I have a carry for Florida. Every time I go to Florida, I take one with me. Did you not it's see just... the news this morning? I heard that everybody in Florida was killed yesterday. You didn't see Someone that? Was... No, I didn't see it. They were all gunned down, the entire state, yeah. <laughs> okay. Because that's what happens then. with concealed carry, you know. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there are other issues, too, in New Jersey when it comes to farm laws. Uh, for example, we have magazine restrictions. We have 
severe weapon type restrictions here in New Jersey. Um, it goes on and on. So if you had now, your druthers, it would be, I think they call constitutional carry, which is everybody can get without a license unless there's some reason not to? I, if the legislator in New Jersey wanted to work and have a permitted carry system, you know, I, I could work with them, you know, because this is a state that's not um, accustomed to firearms, and permitted carry would be a good first step. Constitutional carry might be asking too much for a legislative measure, but here's the thing. If I am elected governor of New Jersey, one of the great things about being a libertarian is that libertarians are all about personal and economic freedom. Democrats, Republicans, they're all about control. Now, the entire legislature is controlled by control freaks of Democrats and Republicans. They always fight about what laws to create, how to do appropriations, how to get their pork projects put in. How to... Now, if I were a libertarian governor, constitutional carry is as easy as a mass pardon. If I'm elected, I will, I will issue a mass pardon both proactively and retroactively to give everyone the freedom to carry a weapon on their person. I might even go as far as doing it as open carry. But personally, I, I like concealed carry. I think concealed carry benefits the society much more than open carry. Open carry is sort of like an invitation for hostility. If you have an, uh, a weapon on your hip, you know, it's possible that if you're not paying attention, somebody could see it and, and uh, make a move for it. Concealed carry does some great things. Um, I, don't, I think it was a, a gun written by John Lott. It was called uh, More Guns, Less Crime. I tried to read it like years ago. It was, it was a big economics book. But anyway... In this study, we found that when, a, when the society is carrying concealed, not more than 5% or 10% of people actually apply for their permit, and not more than 2 or 3% are actually carrying at one time. But the entire society benefits from it because if you're a thug or a rapist or something like that, you don't know who's carrying. If you're in a subway car in New York City, you know nobody's carrying. Nobody. And you can just you can have the run the mill on a subway car. But if you're sitting on a subway car next to someone like me, and you look into my eyes, you're like, uh-oh, that guy might be carrying, so let me move on to another subway car or go someplace where it's a little bit easier. That's where society can benefit from concealed carry. Open carry, is, it, it's nice. I, I, you know, I wouldn't mind doing it. If it had low, but like, personally, I think society benefits greatly from concealed mm -hmm. carry. Personally, I don't feel like carrying a gun, but I would love for people to think that I am. I actually have personal experience. I worked in a maximum security prison at one point in my life. And if you ask the prisoners, would you go after somebody who may have a gun? They look at you like you're insane. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Okay, we're going to go to another break in a couple minutes. I want to switch topics again on you. Your website says you have a history with football, and I wanted to tell you about a story that came out today, and then you can tell me about football a little bit and what it did for your life, that the doctor who discovered CTE, which is chronic something encephalopathy from football, mm -hmm. believes that letting anyone under, under 18 years old play football should be considered child abuse. And he says, quote, someday there will be a district attorney who will prosecute for child abuse on the football field and it will succeed. It is the definition of child abuse. So as a libertarian and as a football player, I wanted to hear your thoughts. Okay. That man that did that study, he did some great work. And I agree, it's a violent sport. Football was perfect for me growing up. As I was growing up, uh, I was a pretty angry young kid because my father was dying of cancer, and I had a lot of pent-up anger. The best play, I was getting into fights, getting into arguments, trouble in school. 
And when I discovered football, that was my outlet. I can take my aggression out on the football field in a, an acceptable way and get that out of my body. If it wasn't for football, I, I think I probably would have landed in jail for something stupid. I'm glad I had it. Mm-hmm. I needed it. But football isn't for everyone. Like, uh, for example, like my, my older son, he plays football, and I'm very concerned about him playing. I, honestly, I never wanted him playing, but he wanted to play, and I figured if he's going to play, I would coach him the right way. So I, I coached him in football, too. So like, when it comes to prosecuting someone for allowing their child to play a sport, I, I think that's a little over the top. But the scary thing is, this is where society is headed. This man is speaking. He's a doctor. He's uh, well-renowned. And people are going to listen to him. We need to have more people out there to counter that with debate and say, yes, okay, yes, football is extremely dangerous. Now, it I think, is. I think you and I could agree as libertarians that we should not be forcing our children to play football. Oh, yeah. We no. should agree I, on I, that. I, 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 <laughs> I didn't want my son playing at all. Because, and I mean like, that tongue-in-cheek uh, because I don't think the state forces anybody to play football yet. <laughs> you know, Rush Limbaugh, who I used to listen to religiously, and um, he said several years ago that the attack on football um, and all these things was the end game, was to end the game of football totally. And I think he was very correct on that because, you know, it's a violent sport. Well, so is boxing. So is MMA. So are a whole bunch of other things. I think lacrosse, maybe soccer, et cetera. And I think they should all be voluntary. <laughs> I don't think anybody should be forced to play violent sports. But football, right. I know that Elliot, the regular host, played high school football. And I know that he says it totally changed his life. Yeah, it, the discipline, the group thing, the indivi- it just makes you into a person. Okay, we're Built just going to go to our last break, and then we'll okay. bring you back one for the – got still plenty, plenty of time to go into other subjects, okay? Thank you once again. This is the Liberty Block on 1490 WGCH. Be right back. Welcome back to the Liberty Block on WGCH. 1490. If you'd like to be on the show, please call us at 203-661-5051. Once again, we welcome back Peter Rohrman, who is running for governor of New Jersey as a libertarian. Um, I'd love to talk about education. I want to ask you a quick question. Before that, I've lived and worked in New Jersey. I don't think most people in this country have a clue that New Jersey has, per Google today, 565 municipalities. That sounds about right. Why, and is that a good thing or wacko? <laughs> okay. Um, the number of municipalities have, has really jumped up. Okay, there was, a, I know a little bit about the history, at least Bergen County. Um, Bergen County, I don't know, it was about 150 years ago. We went through what was called borough-itis. Uh, it's actually a phenomenon that you can see it on Wikipedia or so, whatever. Oh, boy. About 150 years ago, there was maybe four or five townships in the county. And there was a lot of debate in these towns because of, guess what, taxation. The more urban areas were, they had more money in there, it was more economic development, whatever, and then it was, they had farmland on the outside, and the people who lived in the farming communities, they were paying the same amount of taxes as people in the city, and they didn't make anywhere near the money. There were huge complaints, and that's when I think the state enacted uh, the ability for towns to Borough-wise, that was the ability for a small geographic area of a township that could break away without the township's permission and secede and form their own borough. 
And in a period of like three years when this, this law first was enacted, we went from something like 10 towns to like 70 towns in Bergen County because all these people wanted to get away from taxation. But it goes right back around again. All these towns that broke away, they had some temporary relief from this taxation, but now they're looking at the same thing. Everybody's being taxed the same amount, and it's absolutely astronomical in New Jersey. I think the, the average property tax bill in New Jersey is something like $8,500 or about $8,500 a year is what the, the annual uh, average property tax is in New Jersey. You know, I think the overarching point of our whole conversation is um, something you mentioned before. Democrats, Republicans are all about control. Libertarians are about liberty. And how do you ever convince the people in this country to risk it on a libertarian? Well, part of that is we ain't doing so well on Republicans no, we're and not. Democrats, no. are it's, we? It's, but, that's a good point. Like, can I just like, sure. bring up that point there? Like, You're exactly right in that. How do we get people to not vote for their own imprisonment? A good example is, like, in my race, I'm running for governor. The Democrat is Phil Murphy, totally anti-gun. He's, if he gets elected, he's going to put in a whole bunch of anti-gun legislation. The, um, the Republican is Kim Godano, and she's pretty much said she loves the limitations there, and she's not going to roll back anything. Now, mm-hmm. there are plenty of people in the Second Amendment community, most of them are Republicans, who have said to me point blank, Pete, I love what you stand for, but I'm not voting for you. I, that's difficult for me to accept because... I'm representing their primary interest, their single-issue voters, mm-hmm. and they're going to vote for someone that does not represent their interests. I don't understand that. And you wonder um, at what point we say, you know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. <laughs> We've been electing Republicans all over this country for gazillions of years. Forget about the Democrats. Nothing ever gets better. And yet most people, when a push comes to shove are scared of that unknown, like, what could a libertarian do to my country? Well, I don't know. What could he do compared to what McConnell and Ryan are doing to your country? Yeah, on that point, do you remember, there was, um, what did they say back in, like, the 1860s when they said, well, what are we going to do when we free all these blacks? Well, they'll be free. You know, they'll, it's, yeah. freedom is just, you know, it's just, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, speaking it's, of that, um, I heard that uh, you're a white male and your running mate is also a white male. No, 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 no. No, really? My running mate, my running mate is Carice Lagore, and ironically... And I'm um, just joking, because I know that, but I'd love you to talk about it. <laughs> Carice Lagore, beautiful young lady, very intelligent. She stands in front of a crowd, and the entire crowd falls in love with her. She's just got a way with words, and she can just carry an entire, like, whole auditorium full of people. Must She's be amazing. white privilege, right? <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Well, yeah, ironically in this... Today, NJ.com, one of the, the major newspapers in New Jersey, they came out with a, um, an article saying that, oh, we've had two firsts for New Jersey, that Phil Murphy has nominated the first African-American woman for lieutenant governor. I'm like, whoa, 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 oh, hold God. on. You, ju- you just nominated your lieutenant governor, uh, what was it, maybe four weeks, three weeks ago? Mm-hmm. And Carice Lagour was nominated on March 11th. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we beat her by the landslide. So, um Yes. That's part of Carice, how the press does it. They just ignore the other facts. They, yeah, I, I don't understand. You, know, what is it? you can have that Carice on the show here. She's absolutely amazing. You're going to love her. Yeah, I, I just saw her on your website for a second. But unfortunately, people think that, you know, us wackos on the right, why we're on the right, I'm not quite sure, um, are all a bunch of racist, homophobe, whatever else that we are. Um, let's talk about education for a couple of minutes. Um, that should be a state issue. Unfortunately, it's another issue that the feds have taken over pretty well. Hmm. Education. All right. Now, 
I, as a libertarian, I do not like that the government is running our schools. To me, schools have, are no longer institutions of education. They're government conditioning programs to get you to go along with ever's the status quo. Maybe that's why we have such problems with people voting for their own imprisonment, because maybe they learn it in school. Anyway, I'm going to only disagree with you on the maybe. On the maybe? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I believe that every school should be privatized. But in New Jersey, it's going to be very difficult for that to happen overnight. I am a big advocate of choice schools. My brother works for a charter school system, and he loves it. He brought me in there one time to do a talk. The kids were amazing. The teachers were motivated. Kids were learning things. They, they were taken out of an environment that was difficult for them, and they went to a charter school, and they just loved it. Now, I would like to take it even further. What I like under the umbrella of choice schools are voucher systems. Uh, for example, like the high school I went to, it's called Beckton Regional. It's, a, uh, it's right in East Rutherford, the same town as where Giant Stadium is at. And this is a regional school district. They're spending, get this, $33,000 per student a year. And they have like, pretty much the lowest SAT scores in the county. Now, there is a lot of waste that goes on in this school. And it's not just this school. There, almost every school is just like this. I use it as an example because I went there and I know the school very well. $33,000 a year. I can send my child to Rutgers University for room and board for cheaper than that. What I'd like to do is, uh, and I've started dialogue with some people in East Rutherford to possibly talk to the school board, have them take a bold initiative to close the school, and then issue every kid a check for $12,000, and they can take that check and go, if they qualify to go to a, uh, a higher level Catholic school or private school, they can take the money and put it there, or if they want to go to a local public school in the area like Lynnhurst or North Arlington and pay per diem to go there, or they can use it for homeschooling, or if you want to go to any kind of religious school or whatever, it gives parents choice. I want to move the decisions for education closer to the parent as possible. I want to put all those decisions in the parent's hands. It should not be in the governor's hands. It shouldn't be in the state legislator's hands or even like the town's hands. I want it to be as close to the parent as possible because the parent is the one that should be deciding what that child should be educated in. And what, because, hey, you know, my kids too, they, they go to a school that's it's, it's a public school and they could be doing a lot better. Well, not to, like not to mention like competition that right, you get with vouchers, obviously. Right. And also, I, I've also spoken about this as well. Like the, the voucher system that I've been proposing is that, yes, now, like, even like the private schools in the area, they're all going to be like chomping at the bit to get it that extra $12,000 a year. So they're going to um, edit their curriculum to try to draw those kids in. And also the public schools in the area, too, they're going to be, hmm, well, we need to change our curriculum to try to draw these kids in, too, and we can reduce our taxes if we get this money in. And they're not wrong. They're, they're right if they could do that. Now, also, there are other benefits, too. Let's think about people that live in that community. If all of a sudden the... The tax bill for the school is cut in half. Well, your taxes get cut in half. Let's look at the other aspect of it, too. If you're an elderly person, you live in that town, and you were thinking about moving out of the town, all of a sudden your house is now worth $100,000 more than what you thought it was because now younger families are going to be dying to move into that town to get that money for their kid. Now, uh, let's see, other, other aspects of it. Let's see, um, 
there's one other part of it too. I want to discuss. Oh, yeah. Now talking. Well, let's mix football in here too. Okay. Most towns in New Jersey, football is big. It's almost as big as in Texas. So a lot of these public schools, they don't want to get rid of their football tradition. So how you handle that is this: if you close your school, and then what you do is you lease it out for a dollar a year to a private institution who can also bring in those twelve thousand. I'm sorry, twelve thousand dollar checks. Um, the school I'm thinking of, like the superintendent there, his name is Miss Clark. She's phenomenal. She's really trying to do a lot of good, and I think it'd be a great idea if we could just have her run the school as a private institution. She can, she can adapt the, the curriculum to any way she sees fit. If she thinks like we could have like an industrial arts program, or we could have an auto mechanics program, or a computer science program, a college prep program, whatever she feels is, is worthy, she can put in there. We need to move away from government control of our school districts because the government, they can barely legislate. How are they going to run a school? Well, they they unfortunately, I'll disagree. They're doing a great job running schools of indoctrinating children. And that's <laughs> yeah, very, very, very successful. I mean, I look at the world in a simple way. Conservatives have children and liberals don't, and that's a very sad fact. Conservatives tend not to abort. Liberals tend to, to abort. So you always ask, well, what happens to all these conservative children why aren't conservatives a bigger and bigger demographic? And the very simple, uh, maybe oversimplified answer is they're all being indoctrinated in schools. So you do everything you can to raise – I'm lucky. My children are conservative. But you do everything you can to raise your children conservative, and K through 12 works against it. Universities work against it. Mm-hmm. And that's how they just keep feeding them into that system, more and more liberals coming out. Now, I yep. assume you're running in New Jersey. I assume you're familiar with the Jewish population in Ocean County. Uh, yes, Lakewood. Yes. Lakewood, yes, which I'm very familiar with, which is interesting because on the one hand, vouchers is gold to them because among the taxpayers are like, wait, we pay taxes, we get nothing back for our schools. And I'm familiar with all the issues there about the school busing and, and all those other things. Unfortunately, they have other issues, which we won't get into, which lead them to vote Democrat, even though Democrats won't give them vouchers if, you know, hell freezes over. And unfortunately, one issue is more important than the other, and they're not open to listening to what libertarians could offer them, which is that's a very sad, very sad thing because they vote as a block. Mm, yes, and that's what gives them an inordinate amount of clout in New Jersey. Right, right. as, as many it's of become, us know, it's, it's probably the most efficient voting machine in the state. Is the Jewish community? I would say almost for sure. Um, I was once asked many years ago to help the public school in Lakewood get the governor to one of their um, what do you call it? One of their affairs and one of their events. And I was like, hello, why would I able to? Well, you have connections to that community. They can get anybody they want. So, yes, mm-hmm. because they vote as a block, they have power. And unfortunately, they're, for other reasons, they're very dependent on the Democrats for certain things. And it's very sad. And they're not open to listening. But they are a very strong voting block and way out of proportion how much power they have when it comes to statewide races. Um, So we're going to run out of time very shortly. I know libertarians, for better or for worse, are very identified with legalizing drugs. Um, I used to be very conservative, but I worked on a detox many, many, many years ago. And I also lived in Baltimore. I don't know if you ever heard the name Governor Schmoke. Mayor Schmoke, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Uh, no. He was a brilliant guy. I think his wife was an ophthalmologist. He was an African-American guy, wonderful guy. And he came out and said, we need to start thinking about legalizing drugs because what we're doing isn't working. We need to think about it. 
And right, at the exactly. time, I was like, yeah, because what we're doing isn't working. And of course, what happened to him, even though he was a black man and even though he was a Democrat, they raked him over the coals that he would even bring that up as we should think about it. Now, to me, yeah. the argument that what we're doing isn't working is a strong enough argument without the libertarian arguments, which I'll let you carry. Okay. The, my standpoint is this, is that the war on drugs, everything, heroin, marijuana, everything, has ruined more lives than uh, all the efforts of the state combined uh, trying to save. The war on drugs has produces two tremendous demographics of people that are injured by it. The number one injured demographic are people that are incarcerated for having a problem. If you have an addiction problem, that's not a crime. If you're addicted to heroin or an opioid or any, or any kind of like marijuana drug, anything, you don't belong in jail. I'm sorry, you don't belong in prison. Prison is for rapists, murderers, carjackers. It's for really nasty people. If you have a problem, you don't belong locked up with those people because then you just become indoctrinated, you become one of them. And then when you come out, you can't get a job. All right, so people that, the people that are prosecuted are the number one demographic that is injured by it. And believe it or not, the number two demographic of people that are injured by this war on drugs is police officers. Police officers are put, into the path of, put in harm's way to try to protect people from themselves since the 1930s. I myself, I, I was pulled over twice in January, and twice was identical situations. I pulled over, white cop, not a rookie, kid in uh, early 30s or so, experienced, and as they approach my vehicle, they're approaching with extreme caution. They're not walking. They're doing the shuffle step. Their right hand is right above their weapon, approaching close or slowly. As they get to my vehicle, their eyes project nothing but fear, and they're scared. And I can see it in their eyes. This was twice that happened to me within a month's time. And I'm looking at these poor cops. I was like, can you imagine every day you, pull, you make 10, 12 pullovers a day, and you don't know if you're going to get killed because somebody in that car just might decide to use violence to get away for, to try to escape from a, a five-year prison term for having a marijuana cigarette in his car. Mm -hmm. Because that's the option. Like, if you have a marijuana cigarette in your car or any kind of uh, opioid in your car, your options are, one, either step on the gas and get out of there, two, hope that he doesn't search your vehicle and find it, or maybe take, take uh, pity on you, or three, sometimes you can say, maybe I should exercise some violence to try to get out of this. Mm -hmm. We're putting our policemen in harm's way with this. Policemen should not be used for this. Policemen's job is to protect us from bad people, murderers, rapists, carjackers, all right, to investigate white-collar crime. The war on drugs is a tremendous failure. If I'm elected governor, it's going to be difficult to end it because you need to, to work with the federal government. And with Trump in office, it's not going to really happen too quickly. But at least I can take steps to educating the population to accept the idea that we can end this war and do it safely by legalizing marijuana at least. And if I legalize marijuana the way I want to do it, it's totally unrestricted. With, well, I should say unrestricted. One, one small restriction. I'd like to have it legalized where it's untaxed and where there's no government permits for growers of any size. And with the only restriction, I think I still want to keep it as a felony to distribute to a minor as long as you're not the parent. To me, marijuana has so many uh, purposes or uh, applications in life 
It's applied for people with PTSD, people who have cancer, and people even use it for recreational purposes. I myself, I've never smoked in my life. I probably never will. But you know what? If I ever get racked up in a car accident and I'm living in pain for the rest of my life, I think I might rather try marijuana than I would rather go towards opioids. Opioids really screw up your body. Mm-hmm. Marijuana, from I see from people who use it for, for, for pain medication, they say it takes the edge off. It does me fine. So... Okay, um, I always wonder why we didn't learn from Prohibition. We have about 60 seconds left. I want to ask you a very short question, and then you can have the final 30 seconds to answer any any way you want. Short question is, people who want to help your campaign, where do they go? Slightly longer question is, why should somebody vote for a libertarian? Okay, if you want to help me with my campaign... For me to get in that debate stage, I need to raise $430,000. I'm going to ask everyone out there. I'll everyone write in you the a country, check for that right now. <laughs> well, there's contribution limits here. Uh, everyone in this country, please, if you're listening to this show, go to www.pete4nj.com slash donate. Pete4nj.com slash donate. Please donate. If, I can, if you can help me turn New Jersey around, we'll use that as an example, and we can get the other 49 turned around and then put force in the federal government in that direction. Why should people vote for me? Hey, <laughs> voting for Democrats and Republicans the past 150 years, you can't find a better choice? Listen, I'm the best candidate in this race. I'm the only person who's put himself out there for the past... 30 years or so, volunteering as a U.S. Marine, as a volunteer firefighter. I spent 20 years coaching our youth as a uh, volunteer football, uh, wrestling, and baseball coach. I've even spent four years working with the youth of Newark, uh, trying to help them. There's nobody in this race that is more devoted towards the people of New Jersey. Okay. Everyone, I ask you for your vote. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was great to have you. We wish you the very, very best of luck. Um, Everyone have a good night. We're signing off from Liberty Block on 1490 WGCH. See you next week.